This brings us to our time of fellowship in Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Perhaps the story of Josiah found in 2 Kings 22 gives us a good illustration of the truth conveyed in Hebrews 4. Josiah had ordered the renovation of the temple that was really run down after his father and grandfather had used it for worshiping Baal. And it was as the temple workers were going through the temple, they found the word of God. And it was this word of God which became more powerful in Josiah's life than any other thing that he did in the temple. In fact, the word of God tells us that it caused Josiah to rent his clothes because it exposed his true condition. And it's throughout scripture that we are told that the word of God is the most powerful thing that we ever could possess because it was what God used to speak the world into existence. And it's what brought Jesus Christ into this world to suffer and die and rise again. And so this morning as we hear the word of God preached to us, let it be the powerful point in your life where it transforms you, brings about reformation, revival, and restoration. This is what the word of God is to do in our lives. May the word of God this morning do that for us. invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. And we'll be in chapter 9. And in your bulletin is an outline. I encourage you to locate that and uh, use that to take notes and follow along um, and the like. So Esther chapter 9, um, 16 to the end of the book is where we are on our, in our study of this incredible, I'm calling it an Old Testament gospel, or as I call the prophetic work Old Testament epistles. Um, this really is an Old Testament gospel as it proclaims the glory of God's grace so wonderfully. And um, today we're going to wrap it up with, um, um, again, 9, 16 to the end of the book. Um, I'm going to read 16 through 17 as we uh, begin, as this is God's word. Let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of it. Hear now the word of our king. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. 
Lord, what a delight it is indeed to, to come to your word, which uh, um, your Holy Spirit working by and with it truly um, is perhaps the most, is the most powerful thing. Lord, as your word says, it's, it's, it's the power of God for salvation. And uh, Lord, we come before you this day as mendicants, as beggars, as men and women with <clears throat> sinful natures, which are prone to, to wander and Lord, prone not to want to submit to you. God, we pray this morning that you give us by your spirit grace to hear, to submit, to delight, to feast upon you, our Lord. And so be nourished and built up. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Bless me as I preach it. That, Lord, I would proclaim only truth. And that, God, your, your, your word by your spirit would transform us. We entrust this to now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> One of the main uh, and difficult uh, things that um, theologians, young theologians, uh, face at times when they're just being introduced to the beautiful doctrines of the word, the truth of God's word, is they tend to think every doctrine, every truth is a 10, right? In magnitude, every truth is a 10. And yet Christ demonstrates in scripture that not every truth is a 10 in scripture. As he rebukes the Pharisees, the Pharisees in his day were some devout people. Man, they were zealous for the Lord in so many ways. Um, they knew their, their, their scriptures much better than we do. And they were zealous to submit to them. And so, for example, when it came to tithing, they just didn't give a tenth of their income. They gave a tenth of everything. They went so far as to weighing out a tenth of their spices when it came to giving to the Lord. In fact, Paul himself says, I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. These guys are just rabidly zealous for the Lord. But unfortunately, in their zealousy, they were imbalanced in their understanding of truth. And hence, they they ended up um, exalting things that were of a minor importance over things that were majorly. So Christ said these words to him. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe is a malediction. Damned are you, is what that phrase means. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. There is indeed um, more weighty doctrine than other weighty doctrine, more weighty truth than other weighty facets of God's word. And one of the most weighty doctrines that we could ever grapple with and deal with is the doctrine of God's um, redemptive grace. That is the most, perhaps one of the most weighty doctrines. There's many other that would be equal, but certainly a weighty doctrine. The Old Testament ceremonial law, all of it, the holy days, the holy sacrifices, um, all of the different things that are prescribed in that um, sacrificial uh, system, all were given to exalt, explain, to glorify the doctrine of God's redeeming grace. And the book of Esther closes on that note. The book of Esther closes having defended themselves effectively, um, Mordecai and Esther... Institute a 
another holy day that would be that was intended to be a perpetual for all God's people at all times. And that holy day is Purim. This morning, we're going to look at passages that um, describe it, explain it, and hopefully we'll fellowship around it. With that, we begin this morning, would you notice with me, with uh, verses 16 through 19, the rationale for how this day came to be observed. Notice with me verse 16. This makes a distinction between two different geographic locations, so I'll try to I'll emphasize that, follow along if you would. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, not in the capital city, but in the rest of the uh, provinces outside of the capital city of Susa, assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies. And they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done, this is... I'm important, on the 13th day of the month Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing, understandably so. But the Jews who were in Susa, the capital city, assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, The Jews of the rural areas outside of Susa, who live in the rural towns, make the 14th of the month Adar a holy day for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. So this uh, section is given to explain the ins and outs of why Purim is the way that it is. Recall, I'm going to reference what, what we just did. Recall, first, 11 months prior to this, Haman who was an enemy of God's people, established a decree that on the 13th day of of Adar, the entire kingdom, the entire nation, could and should wipe out God's people. Behind him is Satan. Behind that passion was the the, uh, passion to wipe out Satan. We saw that last week, or to wipe out Christ. We saw that last week. Um, But that went, and in God's providence, he ordained a world where that decree could not be changed. That no, no matter how much pleading Esther did, the king basically said, I can't change it, Esther. But you're in a position of power. You and Mordecai do something about it. So they passed Mordecai's decree. And Mordecai's decree, you will recall, enabled God's people to defend themselves on the 13th day. So the way that they dealt with this, with this unchanging decree of death, think of the covenant of works, of, the, of what lies on our lives. The only way that they addressed that was through a second law. And that law was that God's people could defend themselves. In the context of redemption, that law was the law of substitution, that Jesus Christ could go in our, our place. So on that 13th day, in essence, there was legal civil war for one day. All of Persia had a legal civil war in which they engaged. And that resulted in 75,000 Persians killed on the 13th day of, uh, of Adar. And we know another 800 in Susa. So 75,000 throughout. Now, that's a large, a large a number. And again, we need to recognize the text goes to great lengths to show that it was those who hated them. And what does that mean? In the Bible, to be hated, to have someone hate you, is to have someone actively attack you. Okay? It's not to sit there and say, I don't like you. 
It's to attack you. It's to hurt you. So the key here is this. The proclamation or the edict of of Mordecai did not give the Jews license to kill whoever they wanted. It gave them license to to defend themselves. So these 75,800 people who died on those two days, they were the aggressor. They are the ones attacking. And God's people defended themselves. Now, we don't know how many people of God's people died. But we do know 75,800 Persians outside of Judaism died. And that then led to um, Esther's decree where she then came and asked the king um, for one more day. And the king gave her one more day of of a defense. And the reason why was because of honor killings. In that culture, if your son was killed by a Jew, it'd be your job to go and kill that Jew the next day. And so they came up with this third decree, Esther's uh, decree, which was, hey, give us one more day where we can legally defend ourselves. And that's exactly what happened. And on that day, 300 Persians died. All right, and then that leads us to the statement in the very first verse of 16 where they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This is a significant statement because they didn't lay their hands on it. That tells us something. What does it tell us? It tells us that they themselves understood that they were engaged in a holy war. What's a holy war? A holy war, brothers and sisters, is a war God initiates in order to judge a people in the here and now rather than wait to the end times. So just as the doctrine of justification is a judgment before the time, before the time of the last judgment, God declares us not guilty of sin. So it's a judgment before the last judgment, just like the unforgivable sin is a, is a declaration before the time of the last uh, judgment. So a holy war is a, um, a war that is waged before the time on the last day all mankind will be judged, and those who are, not, who are guilty will be cast into the lake of fire. And what will happen to their properties? They'll be burnt up, right? God, it's all God's. It'll be burnt up, okay? Well, a holy war, all of everything that you're going against in that holy war are God's. They belong to the Lord. And so um, that's what a holy war is. They, because they didn't take the plunder, tell us they understood that belonged uh, to God. What holy war were they engaged in? And we've already talked about that. Well, you go back to 1 Samuel 15, and God told Saul when he was first king, Saul, uh, attack and judge the Amalekites for what they did. And and the uh, uh, Amalekites were the um, family of Haman. And so he did that, but he held back all the plunder. He disobeyed God. Well, God's people now... Hundreds of years later, we're not going to commit that same error. So from, because of this, because of this act, Esther and Mordecai established two days for a holy day. The 14th of Adar and the 15th, which by way of footnote is, uh, is celebrated now in February, March. But in a Jewish calendar, at the time, it was, it was December. Adar was their last month. And there they would celebrate for two days in the town, in the main uh, city. It was on the the, uh, 15th. Um, You know, everywhere else it was the uh, 14th. They would celebrate this, this, um, this holy day called Purim. With that then, we are brought to two different decrees for this holy day. The decree of Mordecai and the decree of 
Esther. Notice with me first Mordecai's decree 20 through 24 and um, how um, this uh, passage explains this holy day. Notice 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually because on these days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. That's Purim. Purim is that celebration that, that, that was to take place on a yearly basis from this point forward uh, uh, forevermore where God's people were to rejoice and celebrate and feast and give gifts. That's a Purim. Why? Well, the text, the text tells us the reason why. The reason why was because God turned them from sorrow into gladness, mourning into holiday. So walk with me on this one. Look up. Why were they mourning? Why were they in sorrow? What was it? Initially, you'd say, well, it was the decrees, right? It was this horrible decree for 11 months. They lived in prison under this, this, this pale, this, this shadow of death that was lingering. Who would die? Who's going to live for 11 months? So they lived with mourning and sorrow. But brothers and sisters, we understand ultimately what was behind that attack, right? We understand that behind the attack of Haman, this diabolical, this, this strange passion to wipe out all God's people was Satan. Revelation 12, there's this battle that goes on between Satan and Christ and his followers. And that battle has been characteristic of this world in which we live. And that ultimately was what was behind this battle. But they didn't know that. If you were to go back in time and ask them, why was Haman attacking you? Why is God allowing this decree? What would they say? What would you say if you were living in that time? Well, you'd say, it's because we've done something wrong. God's turned his back upon us. Somehow, in some way, what we've done, and we know what we've done. We've sinned here and we've sinned there. We've compromised here. Um, God's people in Palestine at this point had, had, had intermarried with uh, Gentiles. I mean, they were just in, 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 uh, corporately across the entire empire in compromise. And they knew it. And even though they worshipped God, and even though they wanted to, to serve God, they walked around with this, this corporate sense of guilt, this corporate sense of pressure. So not only was the mourning because of this 12, you know, in you know, 11 months, we're going to die, but it's more than that. It was that, why were we going to die? It's because God turned his back against us. God, God no longer hears our prayer. He no longer cares about us. That's what life is like living in the intertestamental period. And that's what life is like living in the post-apostolic period. Both are the exact same. It's where you and I live, right? When bad things happen in your life, how long does it take for your performance-based flesh to say, it's because I must have done something wrong? What have I done wrong? And that's where God's people were living during this time. And that's why the whole book of Esther's written. It was written to a people who felt this sense of corporate um, guilt, this sense that we are no longer worthy to be called God's people, though we'll continue to serve him. Nevertheless, we expect God to turn his back on us. We expect famine. We expect difficulty. Why? Because God's angry with us. 
That's the book of Esther. It comes and says, you couldn't have been more, more, more wrong if you tried. God's not angry with you. You are his bride. You are his people. He cares for you. And even though you may be in compromise, nevertheless, his covenant love will never let you go. That's the book of Esther. And that's what Purim is. It's a time where they went from, from sorrow and mourning into gladness and joy. Why? Because they're celebrating the redeeming grace of God that not only delivered them from the hands of their enemies, but ultimately reflects the reality that God will always be their God. He'll always defend them. He'll always uh, protect them. Even when everything in this world speaks to the contrary, God remains their God. That's the Feast of Purim. Now, verse 23 Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For, this gives further explanation, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews. Do you know the word for adversary in the Bible? You know what that word translated in the Greek is? Satanas. Satan. Okay, it's the first time he's called the adversary. Normally he's the, the, the enemy of the Jews. Here, Haman is, is without any apology described as the Satan of the Jews. Okay, so that behind this man is this being seeking to attack Christ. And thus he attacks Christ's people. Would you notice he's the, he's, he's the, the adversary of all the Jews. Had, he had schemed against the Jews to destroy them. How did he do it? How did he and Satan do it? And had cast purr... Now notice it gives a translation, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. So what was behind Haman and Satan's strategy here? To destroy God's people. How did they determine how they would do that? Through the casting of pur, and because that's not a Hebrew word, they translated it the lot. All right, that brings us then to an explanation of why now this holiday is called Purim. And that's 25 through 28. But when it uh, came to the king's attention, Ahasuerus, he, Ahasuerus, focus on that because I'm going to address this at the very end, commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, Haman's wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that Haman and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the name Pur, and because of the instruction of this letter, um, both of what they had seen in this regard and what, it, what had happened to them. So, the word for lot, as it just said, is um, not Jewish. If you wanted the Jewish lot, it would be the Urim and Athamim, right? That's what they called it. But in the rest of the world, it was known as Pur. It's an Akkadian root, and it, and it is used of wood, uh, pebbles, or shards of, of, of clay. And what they did in the ancient world, they, they would gather either some either pebbles, small sticks, or shards of pottery, and they would cast them. And whatever way they fell would determine the will of the gods, it was thought. Okay? So, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this for one moment. Imagine being abducted, put uh, confined in a small space for 11 months. And during that 11 months... You're fed but mistreated. But every time you're fed, the person feeding you has this very distinctive perfume, or what do you call it? What's the guy's called? Cologne. A very distinctive uh, cologne. And you smell that for 11 months. 
and then you get delivered. What do you think is going to happen to you the next time you smell that incense, that cologne? Would you go, whoo-hoo, or would you go, ooh? Talk about gross memories. For 11 months, God's people lived under the results of purr, casting of the lots. And this is, this is the doctrine of God's redeeming grace. This is it, brothers and sisters. This is incredible. God does not redeem you in spite of your background. He doesn't look at you and say, you know, there's things about you I don't like. So we're going to let that go. We're going to take the things about you I do like. So there's, a little, there's enough in you that I like that will save you. That's not God's redeeming grace. God's redeeming grace throughout Scripture takes the very thing that is your greatest um, burden, your greatest embarrassment, your greatest sins. He doesn't save you in spite of your sin. Brothers and sisters, he saves you. With, um, what's the word? Um, not with your sin, but he, he doesn't take you out of it, brothers and sisters. He saves you in it. So guess what he, so, so, so that's what we got with a pure, uh, a pure, God takes the very thing that spoke of their condemnation and he sets it up as the name uh, now of their celebration. Does that sound uh, familiar? Do you remember in, during Saul's day, um, actually pre, uh, preceding Saul, Samuel's day, where the ark is taken captive, or, or better yet, they go to, to battle, right? God's people go to battle, and the ark's taken captive. Well, the battle at which the ark is taken captive in 1 Samuel 4 is the, bat, is the massacre of Ebenezer. Do you remember that? God's people went there, and they got wiped off the face of the earth, in essence. Horribly, they suffered 30 thousand dead soldiers. It was a horrible, horrible moment in God's people's time. Well, later on, when God provided the victory for his people, guess what he had Samuel do? He put up the stone pillar and they na- to uh, commemorate the battle, the second battle, and they named it Ebenezer. That's what God does. He takes the things that, that, that make us so embarrassed, our, our biggest struggles, and God's going to use those very things inside of those to transform and transform you to be the people of his uh, possession. You see that with Korah passing through the valley of weeping. We read in Psalm 85, God makes it a spring. He doesn't, he doesn't take us out of the valley of weeping. He makes the valley of weeping a glorious moment of redeeming grace. Think of the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters. When you think of the Lord's Supper, what do you think of? You think of, I think I would guess you would think of a victory. I mean, it's, it's a, a, a declaration of God's love for us. It's, it's our redemption. It's, it's all these wonderful things that you think about. But brothers and sisters, you're not thinking about what the elements of the supper is. What is the supper? What is the Lord's Supper about? It's Christ taking his body and breaking it. Where was his body broken? On the cross. When the, when the, when the cross went into the ground, it would have dislocated, it would have broke his body. And Christ says, he doesn't say, this is my resurrection. He says, this is my body. The moment where Satan was at his highest, glorious point in redemptive history, we finally killed the Messiah. What does God do? He takes the very means of Satan's victory and turns it against him, makes it our greatest victory, his greatest victory, and thus ours. This is my body. This is my blood spilled out for you. That's what we're talking about here. We're looking at 
the, not the victory, at least from the outside, we're looking at the defeat. We're looking at the very thing that Satan's going for three days. Look what I've done. I won. I finally beat Christ. And what does God do? He transforms those very means by which Satan thought he won into victory. So it is our victory. We are looking at our victory. But understand, it's not by God throwing it away. Let's let's forget the past. Don't remember those horrible things that have happened to you. Don't uh, remember all of those sins. Brothers and sisters, remember them as having been forgiven by grace. Remember those horrible, horrible times as times where God molded and shaped you and made you the man or the woman he's called you uh, to be. That's the celebration of Purim. They're celebrating what, what, what Haman, what Satan, the adversary, sought for our death. They're celebrating how God took the very means of our death and switched it to salvation. Incredible. That, brothers and sisters, is what a Purim is. And that, um, verses 27 through 28, um, a transition, that is something that God's people were by necessity to celebrate until the very end. Notice 27, that the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to the regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. So this is a holy day that God's people were to celebrate and never forget. Okay, it's established now. We cannot ever forget it. All right, that's Mordecai's decree. We're going to come back to it. Notice with me Esther's. Well, with that, then, we also have a record uh, in verses 29 through 32 of Esther's decree. We know it's her decree, even though it references Mordecai, because the words that are used here are used in the feminine. So these are all Esther's doings. Notice with me verse 29. Then Queen Esther, daughter of of Abahel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about uh, Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hyrasarazers, namely words of peace and truth. Notice those words. To establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves, for their descendants, with instructions for their times of fasting. And their lamentations, mark those words. And the command of Esther established these customs for a Purim, and it was written in the book, which means it's now inviolate. You cannot violate it. All right, so this passage was given to determine the place and the priority of Purim in the life of God's people. That's what this second decree does. What role does Purim have in the life of God's people? Now, again, you're thinking back then, and it's okay to think back then at this moment. What place did Purim, was, was a, a Purim to have with God's people back then? Well, the place was when they're in fasting in times of lamentation. Because that's where they were for 11 months. Anytime you come to a stretch in your life where you feel God's turned his back upon you, so you're fasting. Anytime you come to life uh, to the point in your life where you feel that, 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 that because of what you've done, you are getting punished by God. That's lamentation. 
Anytime you're there, says Esther, you need to think of this feast because this feast is all about words of peace and truth. What are those words of peace and truth? The words of peace and truth are simply this. It's the peace that comes from knowing the truth of God's unconditional and undying love for his people. That's the words of peace and truth. The word of, of peace, it's, man, it's well with my soul. How do I know? Because, brothers and sisters, God is my defender. He's my protector. He's my deliverer. No matter what I do, no matter how bad I may fall, God is my deliverer. He is my protector. He is my salvation. That's what Purim was all about. Now, I've said this was supposed to be um, uh, practiced by God's people for the rest of of time. So what do we do with Purim as Christians? Okay, now, now that's back then. Come now to the present, 2,400 years later. What do we do with Purim? Come to speak of it, come to think of it. What do we do with Passover? What do we do with the Day of Atonement? What do we do with Pentecost, the, the, the Feast of Dedication? What do we do with all of these things? What do we do with Purim? How is this? I realize I may have bored most of you here by bringing you through the painstakingly what's going on with uh, uh, Purim. And I, if I have, I'm sorry. Um, but why are we giving attention to this? Because, brothers and sisters, I want you to listen to two verses, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. This is why. Therefore, let no one act as you judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Testament sacrificial system, the ceremony all, are all the shadows and the types of Jesus Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. In other words, they all are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? All of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the holy days, the holy feasts, all of it are fulfilled because they point to Christ. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if you have Christ, you are to be celebrating those holy days every day of, the, of your life. Those holy feasts every day of your life. You're to be living in light of those holy days and holy feasts. All the days of your life if you have Jesus Christ. Christ said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, let's focus on a Purim, of Purim, which means if you have a saving relationship in Jesus Christ, guess what? Every day in your life is a celebration of God's delivering grace, his redeeming grace in your life. Every day is, ought to be. Now that being said, think if you can think of a chart of this arrow coming down to one point, and in this arrow is the ceremonial law coming down to Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that because of Jesus Christ, we don't have any holy day and we don't have any holy feast. We still do. And that holy feast was instituted for us at his death. And that death was the Lord's Supper or that, that institution, Lord's Supper, that day, the Sabbath. So get this, while all of those are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we still have one day a week, the Sabbath, one celebration, one holy feast, still the Lord's Supper. And what does the Lord's Supper, therefore, embody? All of the other holy days, all of the other feasts. 
They all come to a glorious climax and fruition at this meal. And thus, what does this meal tell you? It's the same thing that uh, Purim told God's people. At times of fasting and lamentation, when you are at the end of yourself and you, are, um, and you think, man, I have blown it. God could never accept me. He could never love me. You come to this table or you remember this table. You remember this day and you say, that's wrong. That's the gospel. The gospel is that even though I'm at my worst, Jesus Christ came to save those at their worst. Jesus Christ came to save those who are struggling. Jesus Christ came to save those who are sinning. Think about this for one moment. Jesus Christ, God could have, the moment he came, brought us to the final state. Saved his people, went straight to the final state. But he hasn't done that, has he? Instead, he, or he could have saved us and left us in this state and saved us in such a way that we have no sin. All of our sin's gone. The power of sin's gone, the penalty of sin's gone, and the presence of sin, gone. But he didn't take care of the presence of sin, not to the second coming. So get this, God knows. He ordained a world where he'd save people who still have the presence of sin in their lives. What does that mean? That means you're going to sin. That means you're going to fail. That means you're going to have those dark days and those dark moments. And your temptation, because of your performance-based passion that you were born with, is to look at those failures and go, God's going to get me now. Purim says, you're wrong completely. That's what God's people thought. And they were wrong. God never stopped being their Lord. He never stopped being their Savior. He never stopped being their Redeemer, their, their, their Father, their friend. And that's what this meal is that was, that's what this day is. That's what this worship service is all about. Why are we here? We're here because we are saying to God, thank you for not turning your back on me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for keeping me saved. Thank you for making me the apple of your eye. Thank you that you have chosen to redeem me in spite of all the struggles that I've got. That's Purim. That's this table. That's the doctrine of God's redeeming grace. Now, I want to end there, but there's a chapter 10, and I didn't want to make it another sermon. So let's just quickly look at chapter 10. This book closes with a very important, poignant shot, okay? A commercial, if you will. It ends by trying to demonstrate to you who is the hero of your life. Based on everything we've just seen, who therefore is the hero of your life? Now, in, in verse 25, I referenced it earlier, how the text goes to great lengths to show that it, it seems like it was um, uh, um, Ahasuerus who did all of it, right? Look at 25. But when he came to the, to the king's attention, when it came to the king's, Ahasuerus' attention, he commanded by the letter to basically deliver God's uh, people. So it makes it sound like Ahasuerus is some big deal, and that's how everyone would have viewed it. All of the praise and glory goes back to the king, Ahasuerus. So this chapter, this book ends with a public service announcement. Okay, Pause for this public service announcement on what you've just seen. You're going to be tempted to say, Oh, wonderful Ahasuerus, thank you for delivering us. After reading Esther. But you ought not to. Notice verse 1. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. So you've just celebrated two days of, of redeeming grace. Some were no doubt saying, Ahasuerus, what a great guy. You know, a lot of the Jews, God, what a great God. 
But a lot of people are thinking, Ahasuerus. So how does it end? With this very derogatory statement. Do you know what it means to lay on the land a tribute? That's forced labor. That's more taxes. So they wake up from that glorious moment of celebration to be told, we got another tax laid on our shoulders. And what? You want my oldest son to do corvée labor, forced labor for the, the army? What? Ahasuerus, guys, look at him throughout this entire book. He's, he is a very selfish individual. All of the things that were done were not because of him. Do you remember Esther came up to him and said, man, we're going to die. Do something, please. And what did he say? You and Mordecai are in charge. Do it yourself. You know, here's my signet ring. In essence, he was not a part of the redemption. If anything, that man's a taker. He's not a giver. God gave his life. Ahasuerus, he sucks life. That's his modus operandi. So the hero of this story is not this king. Well, then you go, oh, it's Mordecai, verse 2. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor of the multitudes of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke the welfare of the whole nation. Well, guys, by this time, if you've been studying with me through Esther, you know what made Mordecai the person he was. Mordecai begins this book as a, as a compromised Jew who's a compromised Jew. He's a compromised, compromised Jew. We know that. His advice to his, his cousin was not, hey, like Daniel, don't eat the food. Like Daniel, stand for the truth. His was hide the truth, hide who you really are, do eat the food, and do the best that you can to become the, the wife of this Gentile monster guy. That's not, uh, that's not the advice of godliness, but that's the advice of Mordecai. So when we read about the, the dread of Mordecai last week and the weeks before, what's the dread of Mordecai that fell upon all God's people? The dread of Mordecai was the fact that behind this man is God. So when we're exalting, when this ends exalting Mordecai, who are we exalting here? We are celebrating the glorious grace of God working in a sinner like Mordecai. Or the glorious grace of God working in a sinner like Esther. God is the hero of this book. God's the hero of the story. And give this, brothers and sisters, God's the hero of your story. And if that's true, that means the focus of your life will not be your pleasure. It won't be your satisfaction. It will be all to the praise, the glory of God and his grace. That's what Purim is. That's what this table is. To God be the glory. May he increase and we decrease. That, brothers and sisters, is what Purim was and is. A celebration, not of what we have done or what man's done, but of the glorious, redeeming grace of God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. As we look at this book and we see how it ends, Lord, it, it can be somewhat arduous working away through these descriptions of this holy day until we realize that this holy day ultimately is fulfilled in you, Jesus Christ. And thus we see here this, these details, such a beautiful portrait and picture of what you are to us this day. You are our feasting. You are our celebration. You are the reason we lift our heads. You are our joy and the light of our lives. 
You are our peace, our comfort. You are our strength. You are everything, O God, to us. And even though we confess this day, yes, Lord, we are sinners, as we've already confessed as a church, as individuals, yes, Lord, we fail you. But to the glory of your grace, our failures no longer are the basis upon which you bless us. Or our goodness is not the basis upon which you bless us. It's the work in the person of Jesus Christ. So we come before you this day celebrating the death of Christ, celebrating the blood spilt, the body broken, because those very means were the means by which we stand before you this moment as your beloved children. So Lord, we bow before you thanking you. Thank you for this book, this witness. Thank you for Jesus Christ to which it witnesses. And Lord, may we indeed leave here built up, feasting upon Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. 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 Let's go to the table.